Welcome to Women and Manufacturing, where accomplished women interview accomplished women, with your hosts, Jennifer McNelly and Linda Regano. Hi, I'm Linda Regano, co-host of Women in Manufacturing, a podcast series produced by the Manufacturing Broadcasting Corporation. Many of you may know that women comprise 51% of the U.S. population, but did you know that less than 3 out of 10 women are employed in manufacturing? That's why Manufacturing Talk Radio created this Women in Manufacturing podcast, to share stories of the amazing women who are working hard to make a difference in an industry that is so critical to our economic survival. Listeners will hear candid conversations about female leaders, their rise to the top, challenges they've overcome, and what they're doing to to attract more women to the industry. We hope that you'll find their stories to be as inspirational as we do. And today, I'm honored and delighted to introduce you to someone who's been a champion for women and men in the manufacturing industry all of her life, Jennifer McNelly. Jennifer is a fearless advocate for the industry, starting with her days at the U.S. Department of Labor, where she led efforts to improve performance and management of a $15 billion annual federal investment in workforce training. She also served on the White House Office of Science and Technology Policies Manufacturing Research and Development Working Group. Say that three times fast. Jennifer went on to become president of the National Manufacturing Institute, where she led efforts to elevate the national dialogue on manufacturing with research and change national and state standards in manufacturing education. She also helped engage millions of students and companies um, via National Manufacturing Day and the Dream It, Do It Network. Jennifer is also behind the National Manufacturing Institute's National Step Ahead Initiative. She serves on numerous boards related to industry education and earned a bachelor's degree in behavioral and social sciences from the University of Maryland College Park. So that's that's a lot of information right there. Um, Jennifer, somehow in her spare time, still volunteers as a host for this very uh, own Woman in Manufacturing podcast. And I'm delighted to have her today because Jennifer, and I just caught up with her a little bit last week, has been a role model for me at ThomasNet and in different places in my career um, just by the efforts that she's been undergoing in just in, in education and research and elevating that discussion of women in manufacturing. Um, just it means the world it means the world to me and it means the world to so many others. So enough of me. Let's bring on Jennifer. Welcome. Thank you, Linda. I'm always humbled when somebody <laughs> goes through the myriad of experiences in my life. And, you know, I think it's always important. <laughs> and I'm on the other side of the questioning today. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation. <laughs> but, you know, I often, um, with my guests and others, when asked, you know, why manufacturing, mm-hmm. you know, I love people in this country that make things. And from my perspective, you know, manufacturing was a choice, and it was a choice that understands, because of the data and everything we're going to talk about today, how important it is to the U.S. economy and to our nation's standard of living, and to not just what it means for my generation or those before me, but what it means for the next generation and, you know, children's children. And I fundamentally believe that, you know, manufacturing is so important to this nation and to our economy and our standard of living. And and I'm really happy to be here because I am proud as a manufacturing evangelist um, to talk about what we do and why it's important and not just that, why diversity is important and why Mm -hmm. inclusion and perception and 
and a lot of things that I've done in the past feed into it, but first and foremost, it's about the makers in this country that drive our economy, and I'm just honored to be here and be a part of this fabulous network and this incredible Great. economy, so thanks for having me here today. Our pleasure, our pleasure, um, and b- before we start, I was hoping that you could um, just take a step back and maybe share with our listeners a little bit more about how you got started. Um, I love the fact that you are from Alaska, which you just you don't hear about these days, um, but touch on, you know, your background and also the early influencers in your life. Sure, happy to. And I've shared this from stage a number of times. You know, I'm the youngest in one of the very first what I call great blended families. Same father, multiple um, mothers, but the youngest of five in my batch of five and 12 children total. And, you know, my father was a depression child, uh, grew up on the streets of D.C., and my mother's a first-generation immigrant. And what I often share about my parents' story and what that means and my siblings as an entire cohort of 12 You know, my father had an eighth grade education and my mother had a high school degree, but English was her second language. And I am one of the family members that actually did go to college with two parents that did not. And not all of everyone in my family did. And I have incredibly successful siblings that had technical careers that often they think they are less than because they didn't Hmm. have that sheepskin. And that has always driven my perspective and sensitivity to economic success is not always tied to a, a bachelor's degree and certainly not in today's economy. But, but I do think the attitude of social responsibility and purpose and passion for what one gets up and does every single day are huge influences that were driven by my mom and my dad, both from mm-hmm. very unique perspectives. But... But all that really matters in shaping a young person today. Um, The other big influence that I had in my life was my fifth and sixth grade teacher, and his name was Mr. Hard, Capital Elementary School in Juneau, Alaska. Yeah, I know. (laughs) His name was Mr. Hard. And as an adult and as a mature adult, I always wish I would have thanked Mr. Hard. In fact, Capital Elementary down the street from the house that I grew up in doesn't even exist anymore today. Um, you know how elementary schools come and go, but so did Mr. Hard. But at the end of um, the second year that I had Mr. Hard, he actually sent home a note to my mother. And the note said, Jennifer's really good in math. You should encourage her. And mm-hmm. if you think about parents with the minimal education, you know, my sister Jamie taught me to read. It wasn't my mom and dad. It wasn't the center of our world of go get education. They both thought it was important, but but when you don't have a set of experiences that guide you to good study habits and what it means and what the world of work is, that note from Mr. Hard told me when I was very young that math was never going to be an issue for me. Mm. Because Mr. Hard said I could do it. And sometimes it is those moments in time and those influences that you have on somebody's life that you don't even have any idea. And I'm sure Mr. Hard was doing what all great teachers do, encouraging their students, letting their parents know. But for me, and especially as a female, you know, math was never an issue. So I think that too also influenced what I thought of myself in the world. And in the 12 siblings, we have 
um, 10 girls and two boys. So the other thing I grew up with <laughs> was gender was never a barrier in my family because you know, the women ruled the roost, so to speak. <laughs> so, so I think those are, you know, early influences. The other is I did grow up in a family full of public servants. And my mm. father, who from eighth grade education to a very distinguished career as a chief petty officer in um, the U.S. Navy as um, uh, as part of the greatest generation, served as an aerographer. When he passed away, I had to go look up what that meant when yeah, the Secretary what does that mean, of Navy. Air, what it, air What's an aerographer? Yeah. A weatherman. Huh? A weatherman. Okay. And it was actually the Secretary of Navy at the time, Ray Mabus, who sent me a, no, a very nice note when my father passed away, um, thanking him for his contribution to country. And and as I looked up what an aerographer was and learned it was the weatherman, I could reflect back to stories that my dad would tell me about World War II. And in this point, you know, one of the battles in the South Pacific on the USS Enterprise, you know, a lot of boats were going down, and it happened to be one that was not docked at Pearl Harbor. So there's a whole set of experiences that he shared. Interestingly enough, post 9-11. Never really talked about the war, but called all of the kids after 9-11 and said, hey, war is tough. Do you want to talk about it? But oh, wow. as he got, yeah, as he got older in life, he shared um, more war stories. And at one point, as an aerographer took on the captain, I guess it would be, of the Enterprise, they wanted to go one direction. My dad said, you know, I've flown, I've flown today, and that's wrong, and we need to go another way. And they accepted his advice. And and it could have otherwise had catastrophic impacts. The other thing I learned during World War II, and I think somebody's told me they've read this in a book, but during the circling of some of the battles in the South Pacific, they changed the colors on the tail wing and parts of the ship to make the enemies think there was more than one carrier circling. Mm -hmm. So if you could just see it by sight. Oh, that yeah. one, I, I can't even imagine what somebody yeah. goes through, oh, especially gosh. in a world where we're so technologically connected. Mm -hmm. um, but I think most important to all of that was the importance of service and the importance of a good job. You know, I grew up in a family where it was consistently drilled in that the world would actually be a better place if everybody had a great job. I Therefore, my responsibility to create opportunity is a piece of the fabric of who I am. And and also not to mention that your dad was lieutenant governor in Alaska, right? He was part of helping yeah. it to become a state. Yes, that's absolutely true. A very distinguished career. In fact, I learned week before last, uh, they just named a bridge after him. We're oh. <laughs> in the process of, I oh, know, we got got an email from um, my stepmom, Vicki, who indicated it was up before the House and the Senate in the state legislature. And my dad was part when my mom and dad first ended up in Alaska. And they, interestingly enough, ended up in Alaska because they met on Name That Tune. So I'm probably the first <laughs> guest <laughs> family <laughs> whose parents met on a game show. That's great. And my dad was the handsome Navy guy who grew up in an orphanage in Washington, D.C. As I mentioned, you know, he was a Depression child. And mm -hmm. 
his mother, who was one of the first chief petty officers in the Navy, then it was the Department of War, um, ended up with MS. And they were living in D.C. at that time, and she could only keep one child. And um, so my dad went off to Blessed Sacrament, still on Chevy Chase Circle, and have had the honor to walk the floors of Blessed Sacrament with my dad much later in his life. But as a Depression child, into the Navy, into, you know, name that tune, I I'd like to say game shows weren't rigged, but as I understand it, they were often fed answers, not my father's fault. (laughs) He was entertainment and very handsome, but paired with somebody else. But shortly after, he had the opportunity to then meet Senator Kennedy before he was president. And part of that had to do with the contribution that he made to an orphanage um, with the winnings from Name That Tune. And the advice that then Senator Kennedy gave to my father was, if you want to get involved in politics, go somewhere where nobody knows you. Mm-hmm. And he packed up my mom from New York, who'd moved because she loved New York City, <laughs> went across Canada and into Alaska before it was a state, and helped make Alaska a state. He went on to do things like um, support the management of the D2 land issue that led to controlled exploration in ANWR, front end of telecommunications and connectivity. And and again, things that influence me as I look at who I am, my dad always thought about the future and what can I do today to make tomorrow better. And I think a lot of that has to do with the importance of paying it forward, how you accept responsibility that life is a journey and And if every day we can take one step further and do things better and make somebody's life better, we will have lived a life of purpose and fulfillment. And I'm blessed that I get to do that in manufacturing every single day. Just today, can I find one more great career? Can I launch and support one more company that's struggling to find talent? Because manufacturing gets a really bad rap in this country. It does. It does. And and it, just the whole concept of paying it forward is such a beautiful thing. I wish, I mean, I wish everybody was able to, to look at it the way that you do. Yeah, I'm, I think it's important. <laughs> you know, I, and I, and I often share, you know, in the space of perception of manufacturing careers and incredible initiatives that I've had the honor to lead, influence and inform, um, having people just start at the basics of what is manufacturing here in this country and what does that mean to us as an industry and what great career opportunities exist. And and I used to use the term, though I learned during my tenure at the National Association of Manufacturers, don't use these words, but, you know, not your grandfather's manufacturing. Mm -hmm. We're driven by technology. We change lives. We make the world a better place. And we do that driven by innovation and constantly wanting to do more and better with less, the whole ecosystem that is a manufacturing economy. So, so why do times we still, in manufacturing. Yeah. So, so why do we still have such a, a struggle with it? Why is there such, you know, the, the, the brand, you know, I like to say that manufacturing has a brand, it's, it's a brand image issue. Um, why, why do you think that we still have so many uh, challenges facing us today? 
I think there's a, a convergence, and I'd like to say I've figured out the secret sauce or there's one magic bullet, but there truly isn't. I would say it's – I often speak to this unique point in time um, where, you know, 20 years ago we were going to be the knowledge economy and we weren't going to make things anymore. And what mm -hmm. we realized from the data behind it is if we don't make things, boy, we're in trouble economically. So the ability to actually have – integrated supply chains and an ecosystem. I think that's a piece of it. I think another big influence that I could track it back to is um, post-GI college for all. We have defined success in this country as uh, back to a sheepskin. Um, mm -hmm. Having, having that a college everybody, education. Yeah, yeah that it, and that's not the world we live in today. I think that served us well up to a point in time. But I fundamentally believe that the one constant in business today, manufacturing and others, is change. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we need a culture of lifelong learning and long-term engagement. And then I think the other factor that plays into this is the complexity of the public education system in this country, how success is measured, how success is incentivized, and the fact that education is defined as a destination with an end point and not a journey for life. Mm -hmm. And that... You know, I had a niece in mm -hmm. Ohio that just celebrated her eighth grade graduation, and I would have done anything to be there. But the signal that sends to my niece is, okay, you're done with this, this step, time to get on to the next. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we celebrate those milestones. But what we need to be doing is creating an environment of learners. Mm -hmm. Because no matter what she's learning in school today, the most important thing she needs to know is how to learn. And that's going to be the one constant that will make her competitive because the job she trains for or could start to learn about in high school and in college is going to change by the time she hits the workforce. Right. So that other complexity as to what students know, what students get exposed to, what parents know, and what teachers know, I think all needs a lot of innovation in it. And that's where work that I've done around, you know, activities such as National Manufacturing Day opening up the doors, inviting people in, because for so long manufacturers have hidden behind, you know, busy putting products on trucks would be mm -hmm. a statement I'd use. But, but unless we open up our doors, nobody's going to know what those opportunities are. Yeah. And, and speaking of Manufacturing Day, I mean, you, you were really the driving force behind a number of initiatives when you were with the Manufacturing Institute. Um, can you talk a little bit, one of the, the, the things I've always admired is the research that you've done with Deloitte. Can you speak a little bit more to the, um, I mean, it was really groundbreaking, you know, research about, uh, what, about women in manufacturing and just manufacturing in general. Sure, happy to. And I was honored during my tenure at the Manufacturing Institute for, for any of our listeners that are not familiar with the Manufacturing Institute. It is the 501c3 affiliate to the National Association of Manufacturers, and I was honored to be engaged there for nine years and lead the organization for five. And And what always I have respected about the Institute and its partnership with the NAM is it truly was an evidence-based organization, meaning Everything that we did as an organization grounded somewhere back in the research that was in place, and we had mm. tremendous research partners, including Deloitte and Accenture and PricewaterhouseCoopers and, and others, um, where we did a lot of research so that when we 
designed or supported programs, those programs actually anchored back to this is not a problem I, Jennifer McNelly, think is important. It's coming mm. from the voice of industry themselves. And right. a couple of the things that have become key milestones and or longitudinal data include um, the skills gap report. If you were to search manufacturing in the skills gap, you will end up at research and reports cited by Deloitte and the Manufacturing Institute over time. And I would encourage everyone to understand the numbers behind what's going on in the marketplace. Equally, the perception. What did people think? So for a long time, the Institute had been engaged in the perception of manufacturing, but didn't really understand, back to that, <laughs> know the evidence, mm. didn't really understand the information behind it. So with Deloitte launched a public perception um, research report. And the whole point was to understand what the general public thought about manufacturing as a career. So if we're talking to manufacturers, we're singing to the choir. How do we get more parents engaged, more teachers engaged, more young people engaged? And right. and what we learned in that research was three out of ten parents would encourage their kids into careers in manufacturing. But if you had been exposed to manufacturing, you were twice as likely. Another mm. research – yeah, I know. Interesting. So That's why it. So is it six, important? So you went from three – you doubled. You doubled. Yeah. Okay. Wow. But I'm going to add another statistic because I'm a bit of a data wonk. So we also did <laughs> research with the um, Education um, ERCA, Education Research Center of America. And ERCA does research with high school juniors and seniors. Their history is in supporting research behind student college choice. And we launched a research study with IRCA that looked at the exposure of high school students to career and technical education. So we hear a lot about if we could just relaunch the vocational career and technical education programs in this country and expose kids to new careers, we'd start to build that future pipeline. Mm -hmm. And what we found in the research with um, IRCA was, so I'm going to build on that theme that parents understanding manufacturing twice as likely, we equally found with the students that were part of the study, the most important influence was interest and experience. So exposing kids to things like a plant tour changes the perception of where they can see themselves. So 68% of the students that, that were engaged in a career and technical education program had been exposed to it. And then that was followed by dad, then mom, then a teacher of influence. And as we think about next generation and we look at the role that social media played, what the research said behind it was 3% made decisions on social media. Hmm. Friends and peers were before, counselors was maybe 4 or 5%. It's about exposure. You don't know right. what you don't know. So activities like National Manufacturing Day, first Friday in October, I was honored to partner with the NAM, the Institute, um, FMA as, you know, founding partners in the National um, NIST MEP program to launch National Manufacturing Day, which I think has huge and tremendous reach, and it has good for students and for the manufacturers that it engages. They see a huge Absolutely. payback. Yeah. Yeah. So and and it must feel so good to see something like that and 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 just have it grow over the years because you now have how many thousands of manufacturers are participating? 
So I think it was over 2,500 last year, and if you looked at the impact of those manufacturers through media impressions and things like that, I mean, lots, millions of young people yeah. reached, um, yeah. including great partners, and I'm not sure if they're still a partner today. I'll admit I don't track it quite as closely, but I'm a big advocate on manufacturing data. Have <laughs> everybody get out there, you know, partners <laughs> like the Discovery Channel and How It's Made show running commercials saying, That's you know, right. do this. And and again, it's about employers becoming active in their own community because that's truly where jobs are located. They're at the right. local level. And yeah, then so it, the it last... It takes a village, yeah. Yeah, it takes a village. And then one of the last pieces of research that we launched and um, just after I left the Institute, the, final, the, the latest report got published, was really around, again, skills gap, perception, and then within the skills gap, looking at the role of women in manufacturing. And really the first one called the untapped labor pool. So it looked at, the, at where there are immediate opportunities to have impact on the manufacturing skills gap. And no surprise, diversity and inclusion plays a big role of that. And mm-hmm. in the data point behind women in the industry, some of the numbers that um, women and manufacturing radio sites were the Deloitte numbers. But but just an untapped labor pool as it relates to offering great family-sustaining jobs. And that research subsequently led to the launching of the Women in Manufacturing Step Ahead initiative. That Can you tell started us about to, that? Sure, sure. So um, in 2000, and I want to say it was 2012, the Women and Manufacturing Report was published, and in 2013, what I observed in the marketplace where there are a lot of great stories being told around women engineers by mm-hmm. professional societies, but not a lot around the diversity of career opportunities that manufacturing can offer from HR to operations to technical fields like machining and welding. And so at the Manufacturing Institute, we launched a national call for applications to recognize women leaders and the spin on on step it was for science technology engineering and then our cheeky spin for (laughs) um, stem was p for production so Mm -hmm. let's go recognize women and in the construct of it it actually had two component parts associated with it what have they done within their company so great that we're women but that doesn't change the bottom line you know what have they done as as (laughs) leaders within the company to make a difference to their bottom line Mm-hmm. That's one side of leadership, from the C-suite to the front line and everywhere in between. And that, to me, was an important market differentiator for STEP. It was not just executive leadership or long-time careers. It was early career and mid-career and <laughs> certainly the C-suite as well. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of the application was what had they done within their community, because I do believe, as I've shared at the top of you know, the discussion, leadership happens inside an organization and ultimately how you choose to live your life outside the organization. So Absolutely. well-rounded leaders. And, and how, many, how many people did you honor in, in the, yeah, the, the last step ahead? Yeah, so it now recognizes 100 women leaders and 30 emerging leaders, individuals right. under the age of 30 in early career. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we launched it, we thought, well, we'll have, you know, four winners in each category. And I took home all the applications that very first year, not even knowing if we'd get anybody, (laughs) and read all the stories. 
And much like this radio show and my passion for it, what I found was the changing face of manufacturing, and those were the stories that needed to be told. Right. So, so that is the construct and approach that STEP has since taken, and under Carolyn Lee's leadership, will serve to new heights. It now has regional events that it does, and a and a social networking dialogue and conversation. And you know, I was fortunate and blessed to be part of the beginning stages of what I hope is a very long legacy of women leadership in manufacturing really making a difference yeah Yeah, absolutely absolutely me too i hope it does yeah which kind of leads us to to where you are today which is your you know in your new chapter as president of 180 skills um i I feel like it's bringing full circle your passion passion for education um you want to tell us about your vision for it and just what you hope to accomplish over the next few years sure absolutely so Um, I'll say about a year and a half ago, headed on two years, I started to feel, you know, after a career in Washington as a professional education and workforce development thought leader and executive, I think the Institute, (laughs) no better point for where best practices are happening in industry. And I started to feel this tug that setting best practices and documenting them was starting to not be enough, that manufacturers Mm -hmm. were starting to feel the pain of the skills gap, and I kind of needed to get out of Washington and see if I couldn't help on the ground. So, you know, late in career, one could argue, packed up my family and moved to Indianapolis to join 180 Skills. And we are an online technical education provider supporting building the manufacturing skills gap, building the ecosystem that creates individuals that are looking for great manufacturing careers to employment opportunities. And we're not a placement, we're a content provider. We Mm -hmm. distribute content through the public education system, community and technical colleges. But I really came to go direct to employers. There are employers today that have candidates that show up that don't have the skills that they need. And if there's a cost-effective way in which to build skills, I wanna help do that. And I truly believe access to technical skills training and the 76 million Americans with somewhere less than a college degree just don't know how to get here from there because they're busy trying to make ends meet. And if we can open up access and allow more people the opportunity to build skills, we're going to overcome the skills gap. And and that's really what we're doing at 180 Skills. We're... Mm-hmm supporting efforts to build that bridge where people may be shut out today to purposeful intent about getting the skills you need to get into a great manufacturing job and career, more important. And what I do know about our nation's manufacturers is if if they have candidates with the right attitude and willing to learn, they are going to train them their way. So giving them the tools, you know, on-the-job training is expensive. Sending people out and taking them off the line is expensive. Leveraging technology, as we do in every other part of our manufacturing facilities today, is an important piece of skill building, and that's where we come in. That's great. No, it's, it really is wonderful, and it, it, I loved you had a quote uh, early on when we were chatting, which was access to education should not be a barrier to advancement. 
and yeah. uh, you're you're doing that by partnering with the schools and with um, you know it sounds like more importantly the manufacturers directly. Yes. So so well let's and talk that about, I oh, go ahead, yeah I think it's important that um, nobody's going to fix the skills gap problem or the perception problem for manufacturers themselves. They like we need to own part of that, and I often mm-hmm. say. We manage every part of our supply chain, but what you could say is our most important supply chain, our talent. So how we engage, how we challenge what are our standard processes and procedures in hiring to bring more people in, to expose more people, to build skills, to do it at a point where it's cost effective. Because what I do know is the cost of turnover, and I've heard this from employers, you know, first 60 to 90 days can be a 50% turnover. That's Mm. incredibly expensive. It's expensive. So, you know, in our world for less than the cost of one full-time employee, someone could stand up their own corporate university and use it to build skills before people got in the door and build skills to once they're in the door. And and the other important part about where learning plays in the profile of what's expected by the next generation is the millennials today really want to drive their career. So they need to feel like they're being invested in, that they have opportunities to grow. And, and we just really need to rethink our whole talent strategy and how we go from waiting or stealing, beg borrowing and stealing from each other for a nickel more to creating, you know, growing, retaining and advancing the talent that we want. And I also I love that, you know, I mean the majority of manufacturers as we all know are are small businesses. Um so this is something that really can, you know, a small business owner can can tap into this at not a large cost. Yeah. Yeah, our smallest engagement you know, we have a very consultative approach. We don't toss content over the fence and say, good luck with that. So mm-hmm. we have a very structured implementation that looks at how content gets organized against business objectives. So let's start with there. This has to make business sense to invest and understand that learning and development is part of the capital investment to grow the bottom line. Because the flip side of that is cost of a turnover is cost of a bad hire is one and a half times uh salary. So the other side of that is every open job. And this is some of the work that we did with um, Accenture. When I was at the Institute, the cost of an open job to a manufacturer, especially our small and mediums, is 11% lost earnings based on EBITDA. And that's cycle time, downtime, and overtime. So we are mitigating the skills gap against non-sustainable long-term strategies as the baby boomers are retiring. So we really do, you know, we've managed to mitigate that risk right right now, but a small or medium manufacturer for, you know, 12,500 could set up their own university and, you know, year one, there's the upfront implementation that puts learning in place and turns over, helps them deploy it strategically. And that's pretty much $25 a person, you know, a user, learner per month. So for essentially $300, stand it up and let it run outside of the upfront implementation. And and the challenge is we're busy putting products on trucks. Right. So when people right. say where our greatest competition comes from, it's the pressures of old behaviors and the mm. willingness to take a risk to do something different so you can get a different outcome. Because trust me, if you keep doing it the way we're doing it, 
we're going to keep getting the same results. And right, the definition of insanity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, I just we we'd been engaged with a particular plant manager that was ha- experiencing a forty percent turnover. Um, oh my god! In the first ninety days, I know forty percent ninety days. Wow! And the plant was losing money, and in the end, he wanted to go forward with a learning intervention. And corporate then said, "Justify it," <laughs> and then corporate tried Uh-oh. to push it back and uh-huh. push it back, and then HR left, and now the plant manager's gone. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> and now we're back to I, – I just think you know, we're so good at process improving everything. That's what we do in manufacturing. We kaizen right. it. We figure out the intervention. We try things a different way. We have to have the courage to take those risks because the cost of not taking the risk is going to put us out of business in some cases. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Boy, Mr. Han would be proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's. What, one of the things I loved was, um, you know, when we talk about just characteristics of, you know, we've uh, of a true leader, you know, in this. Um, and I'd asked you early on if you could maybe just share, you know, four of the the characteristics that you thought were really important. Could you uh, maybe touch on those? I will, and I will say I am influenced by why I'm engaged with the Women in Manufacturing radio show, and I'll be completely transparent about that. But but early on in my career, I had people try to make me be what I am not. I mean that in the nicest sense. And expectations for how I should look or how I should behave or whether I was old enough and and there was this one experience that I'd had in my career where I was, you know, being taken out to lunch and being told that I needed to dress different. And what I figured out in through much reflection and a coach is different meant I wasn't wearing a suit. Mm. And and I and I had to try and understand that and then I tried to, to figure out how to be that and what I learned in that journey is the best thing I have going is my authenticity to be true to self. Mm. And I think that's incredibly important for women in, because we, we think different. We have different perspectives. Part of what, part of the asset and value we bring to, as does anybody from different backgrounds, bring to the conversation in a business environment is the fact that we all think different. Mm-hmm. And those perspectives should be respected, embraced, understood, and leveraged towards advancement. So first and foremost, I think true leaders are authentic to self because you can't fake it at that level. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. No, exactly. That's why you're there. Yeah. The second I think is really important is humility. We don't always know all the answers and the best leaders surround themselves by, and I've experienced this with the women that I've interviewed, surround themselves by really, really smart people that challenge them, that give them a voice, and that they're humble to not assume that they understand all the answers in the end game. I think that, again, humility is incredibly important. And we know a lot of that, especially in politics. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and business is just another form of politics. The older I get, the more I realize that. You know, education is a business which equally is political. Every environment has it in it. It's just a little more public in the political side of the business of politics. But humility is important. I also think really good leaders 
inspire people to want to do more and pay it forward. They understand the importance of that. And then I think the last characteristic that I have observed and attempt every day to be better at is courage. Sometimes days are hard, and sometimes you have to be comfortable taking risks knowing what failure can look like. And Mm. if you look at the data around women in the industry, we need to be comfortable with taking risks. And, you know, there's data that says we have to be perfect against the job description before we apply. And even some people think that our risk of failure is higher. We're held to a higher standard. But I think we have to, if we're authentic, if we are humble, if we understand it is bigger than ourselves, and if we have courage to believe, all things possible. All things are possible. That's really what I think is important. And and, and one thing that I have always respected is, you know, I'm honored to play whatever role I get to play in this great manufacturing economy for as long as I do. But there are shoulders of greatness on which I stand. And I am forever respectful. And I could go back to iconic Rosie the Riveter Mm. or... Kathy McGee from Motorola, one of my first mentors early in her career that went on. I think she was could have been the very first vice president, female vice president at Motorola, then on to Motorola University to the women that I interview on this radio show. There, I, I did not get here alone, and none of us do. Yeah. And there is in every way, shape, and form shoulders of greatness that we stand on. Therefore, think about our role and responsibility for those that will come after and stand tall and (laughs) take risk and be humble and do more because anybody listening is a set of shoulders that somebody else will stand on. And that I think is really important. And you are that voice. You're a voice for so many. I mean, you know, you've been a voice in in, in many ways for me and just getting to know you better on here, but um, a voice for education, which is so huge. Um, And just, you know, everything that you're working on has, you know, just the potential for such big, you know, impact, you know, um, in terms of educating skilled workers and helping people, helping manufacturers. Um, I just applaud your, you know, what you're doing there. Um, we're we're closing in a little bit here on the end, a little bit over time. Yeah. But, but I did want to ask you, any last thoughts or advice for our female listeners out there? Somebody's out there who's you know, no, no matter what age or where they are at, any kind of advice for them? Um, I'd, I'd come back to believe and have courage. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Take Actually, you really have and, in the in the just yeah. the, the characteristics. Well, Jennifer, thank but you. I appreciate thank it. You this so has much. been fun. And and we're we're at the end here. So, Jennifer, thank you and uh, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope for the next generation as well. And listeners can hear the full podcast at www.mfgtalkradio.com. That's www.mfgtalkradio.com. And thanks to all our listeners. We'll look forward to seeing you on our next program, and perhaps Jennifer will be hosting the next one. Thank you for listening to Women and Manufacturing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.